We are in Hebrews 4, and we ended with verse 13, so we're ready for 14. And I am going to, because the whole group isn't here today, I feel free to do something I normally wouldn't. I would like us to read chapter 4, verse 14, through the rest of that chapter, and then 5 to 10. That sounds good to me. Because this is a whole unit. And I guess, Alex, you'd like to read? I do. 14 through 16, and then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Okay. All right, so I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins, as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot in here, but the core theme that runs through this section is Jesus is our high priest. We're way, way, way away from uh, Leviticus. We don't have a priestly system like they had with Aaron. So it's hard for us to relate to this. And of course, there's that long shadow hanging over us from the most popular view of the atonement that suggests that Jesus, as high priest, his role is to reconcile the Father to us. Though the Bible nowhere says that that's what he does. It talks about him reconciling the world to the Father, but not the Father to the world. Mm. And uh, Jesus, of course, makes it really clear in John. And this is stuff I think most of us know. So I'm just simply reviewing this for the moment. John 16, 25. I've been using figures of speech with you. The time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in such analogies. Instead, I will tell you plainly about the Father. 
In that day, you will ask him my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. That almost sounds like conditional love. Because he believed, yeah. because he believed in me? He, he, he loves you because you love me. Well, Jesus, even though Jesus is the revelation of the Father, he still uses inter, intermediate, you know, mediatorial language. Because they're so far from that. They're so close to the other view that he has to use that kind of language or he'd lose them. Going, what? Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering too. Is like, and I know this doesn't uh, map on perfectly to your model of like minor voice versus major voice, but I almost sometimes wonder. There's, like, there's, the minor, there's minor voice language and there's major voice language. Yeah. Yes. And believe, re, re, remember that Jesus isn't, how should I put it? Only the Ten Commandments are spoken by God directly. All the rest of it is, is gone through the lens of human beings. Hmm. I, I take that from the Great Controversy introduction, where Ellen White makes it very clear that only the Ten Commandments are verbally inspired. All the rest of it hmm. is human language. Except maybe God's arguing with Moses. Oh, I think that's even human language. Yeah. I mean, I think we have the same thoughts. But I, the way I take that, that statement where he loves you because he loves me, the only thing that could have been smoother and more understandable is if Jesus had said, or if Jesus is quoted as saying, the way you can know that he loves you is that he loves me. This is how you know. It's, it's the same principle as go to Genesis 9 or 8. God says, I'm putting my rainbow in the sky. And every time I see that rainbow, I will remember not to send another flood. Really? <laughs> right. <laughs> like he has to be reminded that often? Exactly. <laughs> it's more yeah. like we have to be reminded. Exactly. Exactly. And the language, that's why the lang I call it uh, divine determinism. That language is all the way through the Bible. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. It's used everywhere that God is the one who does everything. And you could argue that in later periods they came to realize that God didn't directly do everything, but he allowed it, and so therefore he did do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think is the importance of labeling Jesus as a high priest. What's the underlying issue involved? That's a good question. Anybody want to respond to that? Notice he's not an Aaronite order. order, order. <laughs> Get that right. Well, the priest was the one that wiped clean, right? Wiped the sins clean. Um, in like Leviticus 16, mm -hmm. so if if the high priest cleanses our hearts, um, mm. I don't know. I'd like I'd love to learn more about Leviticus 16 because I think that's the lens that they were reading this through, right? Of the high priest yeah, and, Le and Leviticus uh, one to five. Yeah, I, I know, 16 uh, where it talks well, about 
atonement? Yeah, I, there's a number of ways to look at this that are all helpful. They're like partial pictures of this. And if we can put them together, maybe we can get something uh, that is coherent. Notice verse 7 of chapter 5. During his days on earth, Christ offered prayers and requests with loud cries and tears as his sacrifices. Mm -hmm. That's broadening the concept of sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed. What, what did he sacrifice? Well, he sacrificed his life. But his tears and his loud cries are sacrifices. Now, my version doesn't say that. Doesn't say that? Well, I have the Common English Bible, and sometimes it takes me on an interesting journey. So what, <laughs> what does your version say? So this is New American Standard. In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior. So there's no sacrifices in there? No. Yeah, mine doesn't have it either. Mm. What about yours, Alex? Yeah, it has uh, to offer gifts. Oh, wait, which verse? Seven. Seven. Huh, no. Uh, here it is. The reason they said that, they added as his sacrifices because it says Christ offered. That's the offering. Huh. The verb is a sacrificial verb to offer something. Gotcha. Yeah, mine, mine says offered up prayers and supplications. Yeah, offered up. You see, that's that sacrificial term. So they were his sacrifice. Mine just makes it clear. Otherwise, you just kind of go by, oh, well, that's just another name for giving something or doing something or or whatever. But it, no, it's a specific term for sacrificial offerings. Hmm. Well, God seems to have a lot of strong opinions about the whole sacrificial system that contradicts most of what we think. Because there's... Yeah, if number of places where he strongly denounces the entire system that he never wanted it. He never invented it. He never instructed it. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah so, seven human institution, uh, Amos five, um, Isaiah one, um, does, Micah six. I mean, does, you just go right down the list. The prophets. Does he say he never offered it or it was never his first first plan of action you know what i mean like jeremiah said yeah, jeremiah says it never came into my mind well that's i thought that was like the sacrifice of the babies American. but no no i don't know uh, system maybe you're right maybe you're right let's look at jeremiah 7 you're right i think it is a human sacrifices aspect but i'd like to look at jeremiah 7 and see exactly what it says there is a place where though he said he said, I never instructed your fathers concerning this. Right. And that's Jeremiah. So he never instructed Adam and Eve like we like to say he offered a sacrifice. It, it wasn't my idea. Huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I think it's a wake-up call. 722? Oh, it's, yeah, 21 and 22. Now, 21, this is what the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, says. Add your entirely burned offerings to your sacrifices and eat them yourselves. I won't eat them, in other words. On the day I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I didn't say a thing. 
I gave no instructions about entirely burned offerings or sacrifices. You go back and you read the chapters in Exodus, and on the day that he gave them out, sent them out of Egypt, he did not say a word. It was not until after the golden calf that God introduced sacrifices. And the sacrifice, you know, it's like you were bringing out the word, uh, the Akkadian word, I don't want to say it wrong, Kapur is the Hebrew, and I forget, Kapar is the Akkadian? Kippur is the uh, Hebrew. Kapuru is the Akkadian. Okay, so he, the high priest goes and sprinkles blood, and that cleanses the holy of holies, the holy place, the altar. And I'm wondering, what did the people think when they were, when they heard that, you know, that this is why they were doing it? I mean, I think they understood this was supposed to get rid of sin. It was symbolic. Their, their guilt would be removed. Everything would be removed. And the sanctuary would be cleansed of what they did to it by sinning. So when you extrapolate that out to the universal application, I mean, you have in the holy place, you have the angels watching, you know, watching this mercy seat. Here's here's the thing. I, I don't think we can understand anything about this unless we also go to Zechariah 3. So Zechariah is, of course, in the Book of the Twelve, as the Hebrew Bible refers to it as. Book of the Twelve? People refer to it as the Book of the Twelve. Why would that be? What's that all about? Because there's twelve minor prophets. Oh, okay. Zechariah 3. Then the Lord showed me the high priest Joshua, standing before the messenger from the Lord. That's the angel. That refers to Christ. And the adversary, literally the, the Satan, was standing by his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to the adversary, the Lord rebukes you, adversary. The Lord, the one choosing Jerusalem, rebukes you. Is not this a log snatched from the fire? Joshua is wearing filthy clothes and standing before the messenger. He, that is the messenger, responded, take off his filthy clothes. And he said to Joshua, look, I have removed your guilt from you. Put on priestly robes. He said, put on a clean turban upon his head. They put the clean turban upon his head and they dressed him in garments while the Lord's messenger stood by. Something else that comes to my mind I have a similar mind to Graham Maxwell. He used to think of things, and then they would lead to something else, and it would lead to something else. Unfortunately, I have that same mind. I'd like to look at Exodus. You don't have to turn to this. I'll just turn to it, because I'm coming back to Zechariah. But before there was a priesthood, before there was a sanctuary, In Exodus 19, verse 6, well, actually, I'm going to start with verse 3. The Lord called to Moses from the mountain. This is what you should say to Jacob's household and declare to the Israelites. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me. 
So now, if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession of all people since the whole earth belongs to me. You will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. That is the minor voice. I've, I've actually have a whole article that contends that this was God's preferred will and that he intends that both men and women be his priests. And that's the last, last half of Zechariah 3. Yeah, let's, let's go back to Zechariah 3. Yeah, the Lord of heavenly forces proclaims, if you will walk in my paths, if you will keep my charge, then you will lead my house and guard my courts. I will allow you to walk among those who are standing here. And it's very inclusive at the end, Israelite or otherwise. That's Zechariah 3? Zechariah 3. Uh, yeah. Um, On that day, says the Lord of heavenly forces, everyone will invite their neighbors to sit beneath their vines and the fig trees. Those neighbors can be anybody. And that ties over to Nathaniel. Yes. The, the sanctuary service is very cosmic. Why, for example, do you have, if, if this is, the, is representing the heavens, and I believe it is because the, the colors of the curtains uh, for the walls were blue and, and scarlet and, I mean, sky colors, radiance, almost not rainbow colors exactly, but you have this cosmic image of the sanctuary and you're going into heaven in stages as you're going to the holy place and then the most holy place. Why do you have cherubim woven into the walls of the sanctuary, into those curtains? And cherubim overlooking the ark. What is there? Are they guarding it? That's the ancient Near Eastern perception, guarding it. Are they witnesses to everything? Very likely. Doesn't it call angels watchers someplace? Watch. That's in uh, intertestamental literature. In, in the Bible, angels are messengers. The word angels is actually messenger. That means that they're involved in everything that happens and every time... If, if we were established to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, every time we mess up in God's plan, then this opportunity for Satan to accuse us. And that, that's why Revelation clears, takes clear over to Revelation. Uh, the accuser of the brethren is cast down. He accuses them before God day and night. So you have this cosmic level. Every time we mess up, every time we sin, it affects the holy place. There's an Adventist scholar who, who takes it this way and actually has written a book about it. The problem is he extrapolates the appeasement model and puts it into the, the, the book when that's not required. You don't have to translate Kipper as appeasement. Yeah, the cosmic thing then... Is it when it says the altar is cleansed, the holy place is cleansed, the most holy mm -hmm. is cleansed? 
Well, the altar represents our prayers. How, how perfect are our prayers? How perfect is David's prayer? You know, the one he prayed where God, please, you know, trash my enemies. Oh, is it the water the pharaoh the furrows of their field and the angels go to god god really is that what you yeah. want to do and and the, at the end of the prayer he says search me and know my thoughts and see if there be any evil way in me he has the consciousness that something isn't quite right with this prayer see i never pictured the i i pictured it the altar where the lamb died is the one that was cleansed but you're 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 Indicating it's the altar of incense. That was the altar of incense has to do with prayer. Yes. So is it the altar of incense that was cleansed? I thought it was the altar where the lamb died, which. Oh, oh, the altar. Yes, that that too, because our sins result in this innocent victim dying. So when it says that's cleansed, I was thinking last night, how is how is this cleansed? You know, I mean, I can, I. I you have to take it very metaphorical and symbolically. Yeah, like maybe heaven is vindicated after um, Christ. The blood re represents Christ's death, right? So yes. that vindicates God's yes. way of governing yes. uh, in the holy place. That's, the holy place. That's the short, the short step. I did a long way around, and and on the day that we talk about the blood more, uh, which I think is later in Hebrews, I'm going to be bringing a, a handout that I'll share with you. <clears throat> I will share it with you because. I, did, I looked up all the major places where the blood is mentioned. I didn't do the Leviticus because Leviticus doesn't explain it, but all the explanations of the blood in the Bible. And it's very interesting. The blood of Jesus is not mentioned in terms of the crown of thorns on his head, in terms of the scourging of his back, or in terms of the nails in his hands and feet. There's only two. There's only two points of Jesus' blood, the blood that he loses in Gethsemane, that pours from his forehead, and the blood from the pierced side. And that those two points point to the nature of Jesus' death, that it was the result of sin, not God killing him. I remember you saying it notes the beginning and end of his mental anguish. But it's also the beginning and the end of his, his whole from Gethsemane, you know, to his death. The mental anguish that killed him. Yeah. So it's, it, to me, it's saying this is what killed Jesus. The broken heart, the um, separation of sin brought from his father. See, I think this is very real. And I think we have so long just glossed over it and used a framework that isn't necessarily real itself which is to me the legal model is not real right not experiential mm. that we fail to realize that this is really real and as as jesus felt this black cloud coming over him from satan he felt the guilt of every person uh which i think i said a few sabbaths ago ellen white says he felt he feels every time someone sins he feels their guilt what is that? How does that happen? He has empathy. He has such tremendous empathy that he feels their disappointment, their fear, their, their guilt, their everything. He just feels it. And I think that Hebrews is going to point us to that direction.
the Jesus empathy. He uh, feels, felt this whole thing. It is the consequence of sin. It isn't God that is having to walk away. God was at the cross. The Father was at the cross. He was in. He wasn't physically separated from Jesus. But that, that black cloud of sin made it impossible for Jesus to connect to the Father, just as it tends to make us unable to connect to him. So the cleansing that the blood affects is not a cleansing of legal records like we've always been taught. It's a, it's a purging out this darkness out of us mm -hmm. to finally believe the love that Jesus demonstrated under the worst possible conditions in other words, the cross was us testing God in the flesh to see if he would love us under the worst possible abuse. Well, I certainly see that. Over with, to wanting to punish us. I certainly see that with Satan. Yeah. Satan is at the foot of the cross trying to take Jesus' life, trying to put God where he can't forgive. Mm -hmm. This is so bad. You, I mean, you've taken my son and, and done this to him. How can I forgive you? That's where Satan is trying to, and I, I take that from Patriarchs and Prophets, where she says that, that Satan, all during those early years after the fall, he tried to make human beings feel so sinful to God that God could not forgive. Actually, I think that's Desire of Ages. He's, and he looks at the Father's face. This may have been the closest position Satan had been after the Father since his fall. He looks at the Father's face, and the Father looks right at him with the same look that Jesus looked at Judas. And Satan fell from heaven. He realized that he could not get the Father to hate him. If he could get the Father to hate him, then Satan's whole kingdom would be one. That's incredibly powerful. See, it, we have trivialized sin for so long that we don't get this whole picture at all. What Jesus' high priestly ministry is, is to reconcile us. And the Bible uses that language, particularly Paul, reconciling us to him. In, uh, I think it's first, Corinthians, first or second Corinthians. We just happened to reconciling the world through him. Yeah. That's the way it is with the parable of the prodigal son. That's what I was immediately thinking of. I mean, where's the sacrifice and the blood in that parable? Oh, quick, before I can forgive you, son, I've got to go do the sacrifice. Or you've got to do the sacrifice. Here's the fatted calf. Kill him. Gee, why, do you think, there. why do you think after the golden calf, God would institute the sacrifices because there's so much room for people to look at it as appeasement evidently since you know Moloch needed baby's blood and you know all this other stuff if he hadn't they would have been worshiping the golden calf forever I see he they had to give them. them something close enough to where they were with enough rules and regulations to kind of 
fence them in. Keep in mind, um, the, one of the models I use for the coming out of Egypt and out of slavery comes out of something that I found out about. I began to think in terms of reparent, God reparenting. In some psychological cir circles, there's this Jungian belief that you can reparent people who have been really messed up from childhood and um, bring them back into normalcy of thinking. And so a couple of psychologists, no, psychiatrists, decided to use this on schizophrenics. And they would take on a schizophrenic patient who came to them and so love on him that he would re be actually literally physically reduced to babyhood. And they would feed him with a bottle. They would change his diapers. They would, you know, and then he would get to the stage of crawling and he, he would actually do it all over again. And it would take about two years to reach adulthood again. And so I, I, I know this sounds really outlandish, <laughs> but they wrote a book about it. And they had a success, fairly high success rate. No more schizophrenia in the yeah. So so lack of problem. Love. The problem is that this got abused. Well, they had disciplined him. You know, they didn't. They weren't lenient. They disciplined him when he needed it. But unfortunately, this got terribly abused by some people in Colorado, and they actually suffocated a girl to death because they tried to bring her through a birth process in this blanket and she was screaming to get out and uh, she died. Uh, they were abusive in the way they used it. So it's gotten a bad name and, and consequently I'm a little reluctant to even bring it up, but it, it, it is what triggered this thinking that all of the birth models and childhood training models are in place in Exodus. So you have the eating of the lamb at Passover, gestational process beginning. And what a few days later, you know, you compress from prenatal to adulthood in two years. So it's only days later, they're at the, the, the birth site of the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea, the birth canal, and they come out born as Israel's nation, as God's nation people. Oh, and then they're immediately deprived of food and water. Why? Because an infant can't get food and water for themselves. They have to have their needs supplied. So God allows them to get where there's no food and no water so that he can supply their need as their parent. So they have manna and they have water from a rock. And a few weeks later, they're at the foot of Sinai. And now they're seven years old. And what do seven-year-olds do? Try to flaunt the rules, right? So God sets down some rules. And what do they do? They turn into teenagers. Mom and dad's away, let's have a party. They thought because God, even though they could see the fire and the flame on Mount Sinai, they thought God had abandoned them and, and God was Moses. Moses had abandoned them. And so they built this calf. 
and they danced around it. So what does God have to do with children who aren't willing to obey? The same thing parents do, more rules. And the Israelites come to the place where they need this whole priestly system. And it's intended, I don't think it's intended to reinforce how sinful they are. It's intended to relieve them of their sins. I think we misread it as condemnation instead of rescue. The pus has to be drained out in effect. Yeah. I remember um, Ellen White saying that all this, referring to the sacrificial system, was to emphasize the fact that sin results in death. Yes. So in that sense, I can see that. That's in the earliest, earliest context of Adam and Eve in Patriarchs and Prophets. She said it was to show that it is sin that leads to death. So he did do a sacrifice thing with Adam and Eve. Yeah, this is when, when Jeremiah is talking about, I never gave you instructions. When you came out of Egypt, it's, it's the whole, the, the simple sacrifice of one individual offering an offering for his sins is one thing. But this whole huge sanctuary service types uh, arrangement was not done until the golden calf. So Abraham, now it's obvious that God in in the construction of the text, it's obviously that obvious that God and God mentions He's going to do a sacrificial system before the golden calf, but uh, that's foreknowledge, I think, rather than this is what I was all I'm always been planning. I don't think that. Where does it mention that He had? Oh, I'm not sure. I can find it quickly. Um, I mean, we yes. see Adam, Adam and Eve, according to Ellen White, and then we know Abel. And, well, and Abraham offered burnt offerings. Was that just the custom of the day, you know? I think so. I think a lot of that is custom of the day. I want to come back to that custom. Noah um, offered sacrifices, maybe in excess. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible amount. I forget when I where I was re hearing that, that he just really. But then, but then I think Noah, after being so traumatized, I mean, if you came out of the ark and the earth is not even remotely like what you left it, talk about depression and <laughs> fear. And, and he's tempted, I'm sure, to think that this is all the vengeance of God and we better appease this very angry God. And so he has this, outpouring of massive amounts of sacrifices which parallels micah 6 5 and 6 yes um and there's something in genesis 9 or 8 that reinforces that and god smelled the pleasing scent uh, the lord smelled the pleasing scent and the lord thought to himself i will not curse the fertile land anymore because of human beings since the ideas of human mind are evil from their youth. Yeah. I will never again destroy everything as I have done. Oh, help. Here goes all this bloodshed again. <laughs> it, it's, it's almost as if that's his response. It's not the response you would, oh, thank you, Mo Noah, I'm appeased. No, I'm not going to do this again. Look what's happened. 
you you lost the point already. Mm-hmm. You know why didn't God come down? I mean, I mean, evidently He made it clear to Jeremiah that I didn't I didn't want to go into all the sacrifice artificial stuff. Uh, why didn't he? He talked to Noah directly, talked to Enoch directly, talked to Abraham directly. Why not make that clear right there? Okay, let's talk about, I hope I don't offend anybody like Alex, who's a psychologist. (laughs) I have to use psychological models in order to make sense of things. There are three states of mind. There's rigidity, chaos, and Integration. When you have people who can't be integrated because they've been traumatized. And the Egyptians, I mean, the Israelites had been traumatized by Egyptian slavery. They will either go into chaos or they will go into rigidity. They cannot integrate. Integration is stability. Integration is with both sides, the hemisphere, both hemispheres come together mutual agreement in chaos or in rigidity one side dominates the other consequently there's this tendency to think that it's all or nothing all meaning rigidity i have power over everything or i have nothing chaos Uh, we've been watching this by the way in our own current history by the way, this is on par with a cognitive understanding of trauma. Yeah. We use different words, but it's the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just that I happened to read the book Brainstorm by... Uh, do I have that book here? I have it in my office. And I can't think of the psychiatrist's name. He's out at UCLA. He uses that whole those metaphors for uh, understanding this. So God has a choice. He can't integrate them. They've been too traumatized. So he either has to go with chaos, where he loses them, or with rigidity, where at least they have a point of contact, however tenuous and however difficult it is. And their orgy with the calf was chaos. It was chaos. He has to answer with rigidity because it's the only other option they have. Yeah. They can't do integration. So God, that's why, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were panic-stricken by something or traumatized by something, and you tried to get God to help you, and he was dead silent. Ever had that experience? Yes. (laughs) I have it. Unfortunately, I can get traumatized quite easily. And I have it. And God is always, when I'm in my deepest pain, in my deepest need, and I cry out to him, he's silent. And when I finally calm down, and I get to a place where he can talk to me, then he starts the process of integration. And that's the definition of obedience, isn't it? A willingness to listen? Yeah, but we don't think of a willingness. We think of a willingness to listen as something anybody can just do. You know, I mean, just listen up, right? No, if you've been traumatized, you can't listen. And that's chaos where you can't listen? Is that chaos? Either way, 
you can't listen with rigidity because you're too rigid to, to believe it. And if you and if you're in chaos, you can't hear it. And rigidity, if he doesn't completely agree with you, then it's the wrong voice. Exactly. You know, Alex, as a psychologist, you're nodding your head, and I'm going, I'm lost. <laughs> um, well, it, keep in mind, psych, psychiatrists have determined there are there are two brains in the head, mm-hmm. left hand hemisphere and right hemisphere. Those two brains in trauma do not get along. They do not agree. And that breeds chaos on the right, right brain chaos or left brain rigidity. So it's a little like you're driving down the road and uh, you're enjoying the scenery and your right brain is taking it all in. You know, your right brain likes pictures and likes uh, ways of looking at things and so it's taking in all the scenery and all of a sudden you nearly swerve into the oncoming lane and you nearly hit a car and and you're suddenly brought into trauma and your left brain says look you start driving straight and don't pay attention to the scenery and the left brain locks down the right brain and says no more of that that's what happens back and forth the two do not get along in trauma. And what has happened to us is all sin is a form of trauma because it's antithetical to the way God made us to exist. And to, he made us to love one another. And love is obeying the law. Paul says it in Romans. And, and when we do anything that's unloving and we cause trauma in other people, we cause it in ourselves. And usually, in a religious experience, unless we're Pentecostal, our way of doing trauma is rigidity. We cause our trauma through being hard-headed and hard-handed with other people. I should say heavy-handed with other people. To get us to the place where we can love. We can be open. We can listen to other people's viewpoints and not judge them. We can be harmonized with other people is when the left brain and the right brain become centered and they work together. Synchronized. Synchronized. That's another term. Good term for that. I like integrated because it means all the parts fit together in a perfect whole and work together functionally. They're all being used. Pardon? And they're both being used. Yes. That is what learning the truth about God did for my brain. I can go back to that first conversion experience that I told about last week and know that I started becoming centered brain from that point on. To me, it's a a beautiful picture that God um, has an approach through his medicine of love that works with either right-brained quotes or left-brained people. You know how we, right. uh, at least us novices tend to say, oh, this, she's right brain and he's right left brain and that kind of thing. I don't believe God designed right-brained people or left-brained people. He designed whole-brained people. However, we have deteriorated that way and God is willing to work with either style and God has a way of using love to a right-brained person 
to fix their imbalance and their faulty lopsidedness on things. And the same with the left brain. And you, you find that, at least I found that out, when, when you get married, uh, we tend to marry people that have the point of view that we don't have very well. I don't know why that is. Probably it's a God thing because it knows that two right brain people are going to have a rough time going through 50 years of marriage. So maybe that's why he does it. But what happens is because we have in our left brain and our right brain approach things, a common, we both have this common problem of selfishness. It makes it difficult for us to try and see that the other person has what I need and, and I have what she needs kind of thing. God needs to come into there and because God can apply his love to either side equally and, and fix the problem because the main problem isn't left brain and right brain. This, the, the problem is the selfishness and the self-managed initiative that we have. We just, you know, when things get rough, I'll take care of myself. And that cuts God out and the medicine mm -hmm. stops coming. Mm -hmm. And so we get sick or, you know, and so I just had that when you're doing this left brain, right brain, I had that beautiful picture come in my head. That God said that I have medicine that works no matter how lopsided your brain gets. And it, it's not just a medicine. You go down and, and you buy it and, and you have to take it. Right, oh, I have to right. take my medicine. Yeah. It is something that is actually life-giving and life-sustaining. It is mm -hmm. something we have to have. It's something we were born to have. It is something that uh, keeps the whole universe going. Yeah. Uh, water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's better than water. I mean, I love yeah. water. <laughs> water of life. Yeah. Yeah. The rigidity, I mean, Enoch was so close to God, right? He walked with God and Noah, what was his, his grandson? And it, they, I, I don't know if Enoch offered sacrifices, but Noah evidently thought it was the thing to do in mass. When well, I, I think that goes back to the belief that we have that God did do a sacrificial system so that he could get them to grasp what death was. No one had ever seen death before. And he had to do it so that they would understand the connection between sin and death, like Ellen White says. So I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, it's that horrendous sacrificial system. It was so complex. And so it, it almost sealed your guilt as never being ending the way it was constructed. I mean, the way, and the way the priest ministered. Morning and evening, every day, continually. And it isn't just that, it's all the other things that went with it. Is that like a precursor to eternal hell? <sighs> Not exactly, but it's, sometimes, sometimes I have said, I hope I don't I don't know whether this should be recorded or not, but <laughs> sometimes I have said that in the 1960s, the investigative judgment became the ever burning hell of Adventism. But it was for me. It was for my brother. Mm. It really was for me. And we were taught it. You probably don't remember this, but we were taught at age six. In fact, probably starting age four, because the kindergarten lessons spelled it out. It made it very condemna condemnatory. And the way I found this out 
I, I have an experience when I was seven years old. I think I've told this in this class, but maybe not with this particular group. I was seven. I had to dust the upstairs, all the bedrooms in the upstairs, my bedroom, my brother's bedroom, my parents' bedroom. This particular Friday, I was very carefully taking everything up, dusting underneath, dusting the object. And my brother had a collection of shells and a collection of what have you's in his bedroom. And I had to pick up everyone and dust. And so I was moving very slowly. And I had to make sure I dusted the corners because somehow I got told the story of Booker T. Washington and how Booker T. Washington dusted a prospective boss's office like four times. And he got his job, you know, and, and so that all got in, infused in this. If you don't, the record keeper is kicking record of everything you do. If you miss a corner of the dresser dusting, you will come to the judgment with Jesus looking at you and saying very sternly, you can't come in here because it says on your record in May 4, 1964, you missed the corner of your dresser. That was a your story hour story. Even recently. You know, and Washington or somebody, you know, getting into college because they dusted, you know, yeah, thing in the room. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's that's one of their proud stories. This one particular Friday, I was slow and, and the sun was going down. And my mother yelled up the stairway, Linda Jean Sheldon, what is taking you so long? It's almost sundown. You haven't had your bath yet. And I, before I could answer her, she was there. She grabbed the dust rag from my hand. She began whisking it around her room. By that time, I was in my parents' room. Then I saw it. She missed a corner of the nightstand. I said, Mom, you missed the corner of that nightstand. And she said, don't worry about the corners. We don't have time to worry about them. It's almost sundown, and you haven't had your bath yet. And I was in shock. I was like, Mom's not going to go to heaven. No. <laughs> And then I remembered something else the Sabbath school teacher said that if it, they didn't know it was a sin, it wasn't, they wouldn't, wouldn't be held guilty. And so I. Don't uh, tell her. Don't, don't tell her. Because then she'll be guilty, right? Um, <laughs> the legalist. <laughs> How we play games with the law. But I mean, children think that way. I mean, it's just magical. Yeah, it's magical. So years, roll the camera forward about. 25 years, I'm in Hong Kong Evidence College, and a friend of mine says to me, Jean, I'm supposed to teach the kindergarten Sabbath school lesson tomorrow at church, and I don't know what to do. This lesson, I, I just don't know what to do with it. Would you look at it and give me some help? I read that lesson, and it was deja vu. <laughs> I was right back as a seven-year-old, six-year-old in kindergarten with the investigative judgment, the way it was taught then. That's traumatizing. It was horrible. It was horrible. And I said to her, do you want me to teach it? She said, would you? So I tried to teach it very differently. And a six-year-old boy was so traumatized. He kept telling me it wasn't that way. 
<laughs> I'm just curious how you how did you teach it? Um, well, I don't remember how I dumbed it down for the kids. You know, I I wouldn't teach it quite like I'm teaching this group. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it was it was along the lines that we're talking about and how Jesus was protecting us from Satan's charges and and etc. And how if we've seen him, we've seen the father and the father lo- loves us to, uh, just as he loved his son. And so along the, those lines, you know, he, he just this this child just couldn't believe it. He was raised in a very legalistic family. Mm-hmm. It was very heartbreaking. <sighs> We've lost so many, so many my age, older, younger, through that wrong picture of the investigative judgment. And it's not that I don't, I I do believe in the investigative judgment. And rather, I prefer the term investigative judgment as opposed to pre-advent judgment. Because investigation means that God goes through this process. He doesn't collaterally say, I'm God, and this person is going to go to heaven, and this person is not going to go to heaven. He doesn't do that. He goes through a process where everybody's agreed that he's made the right choice and that Satan is wrong and that he's in in the business of saving people, not damning them. God did not come into the world to, to judge the world. He came into the world to save the world. That word is judge. It's not condemn. I mean, it concludes condemnation, of course, but it means that God just did not come into the world to judge the world. I mean, there's a whole, if, if you get me going, I can get on a roll with this and just keep going because John, the gospel of John to me spells out what the, God, the judgment really is. Yeah. Can I offer another perspective that's very parallel to this on why Hebrews makes such a big deal out of Jesus being a high priest. Sure. Because I grew up exactly like you described, and, and I still can be triggered by that, mm-hmm. as, as I know you can. It's, but in, I, your, it's in your default. It's in my <laughs> default, and I'm you know trying to get that rewired, but it's taken my whole life to do it. Yeah. But I can tell you I've had more peace than I've ever had in the last few years as the truth keeps setting me free. But one of the things that began emerging for me a few years ago, as I sort of looked at the big picture and particularly in Hebrews is something that seems to have fallen off the shelf entirely in, in our perspective of salvation that I think from heaven's viewpoint is almost at the very center of salvation. And that is the issue of who is allowed to represent human beings in the assembly of heaven. And in Job, we see that Satan is the one claiming to represent humanity and God lets him do it. Which if you really stop to think about that is terrifying. You know, Mm -hmm. your worst enemy your greatest accuser is up there as your representative. How would you like to send to the Senate or to Congress or to the UN someone who hates your guts and is diabolical and wants to see you dead? And all they're going to do is badmouth you when you, when they get there. I mean, who wants a representative like that? And yet that's what we had for 4,000 years. 
And God's graciousness says we can't stop it. It's legitimate because Adam gave it to him. And there isn't any human beings that can get up here to even do that job, much less that are qualified. So God sends Jesus to become a genuine human being, largely so that he can legitimately displace Satan as that representative in heaven. And Satan's not a human being, so he's illegitimate from the get-go. But there isn't any human beings qualified to do it. And, and everything about Jesus' life, everything about his death, everything fits into this model. Imagine all the other loyal angels, all the other loyal worlds, having to put up with Satan's constant haranguing, accusing God, accusing everybody else for 4,000 years. But because he's got the credentials, nobody can stop it. And they're sick of it. So Jesus comes to this world and Satan realizes, wait a minute, I may lose my position. So he's fighting to the death to try to prevent this from happening. And yet Jesus develops a resume that's absolutely spotless. There's no disloyalty. He's a full fledged human being and so he turns in his resume upon death and says i want the position but the whole assembly has to vote on it i believe that's why immediately after the resurrection he was so urgent to go back to heaven he wanted to know how the vote went he wanted to know if his credentials were accepted he wanted to know if it was successful that he displaced satan as humanity's representative so when he gets to heaven, he rushes straight into the father. And the father said, it's unanimous. You got the job. Yeah. And that's when he says, listen, I've got all the authority in heaven and earth. And I get to completely redefine what it means to be a human. And when you were describing Jesus absorbing all of our sins, that's exactly what I finally begin seeing in the cross. Literally. So that my anger toward my enemies, my shame, all that stuff, Jesus literally and physically absorbed it and it killed him. Therefore, because he fully identified with me, now as every single human's representative and every single human being is in Christ, then he gets to define what it means to be a human being. And he actually demonstrated what it means to be a human being. And so he gives us his identity. It's not something that we have an option of. We're all in Christ. Now, whether or not it changes us, that's a whole different story. But we have it. Mm -hmm. And so I think Hebrews is this celebration of the fact that Jesus has displaced the other angel who claimed to represent God. And now he not only represents humans before God, but he represents God to humans. So would you take Zechariah 3 as kind of a picture that demonstrates that? Yes. In a, in a prophetic yes. In a prophetic word looking ahead. And Joshua uh, represented Jesus. Yeah. Can I just interject something? You know, being raised in a Calvinist home, I always recoil when... I hear, well, God handled things differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. 
I, I realized that, you know, Ellen White says God was God veiled until Christ died. And then the totality of his love was evident to everybody, even the universe. But I, I just recoil at, I mean, that the antediluvians had so much light, so much light. And yes, you know, it became darker and darker and darker until finally they didn't have much at all. But I think I think the same happened with Christendom after the cross too. Yes, yeah. And so the Bible predicts that, doesn't it? Doesn't Daniel predict that? Um, yes, with the prophecies and the you know yeah. persecution, that the, the things would get pretty bad and pretty desperate, and we call that the Dark Ages. Yeah, and we've been climbing out of that ever since and not making much progress. <laughs> so for me, I always try to look at the Old Testament and say. Where was the original light? You know, where was the original light that got dimmed? Well, that's why I have have created and eventually once we're through the Bible, maybe that maybe I should take you through that journey because I kept seeing a pattern in reading the Old Testament with different topics. I kept seeing a pattern that I was afraid to even use or even even reflect much on. I, I, I don't know why, but I, I thought, oh, this is, this is, maybe I'm going off the deep end. This can't be. Um, but I kept seeing this pattern. And then I read Jesus in Matthew 19, use it. Use that same pattern. In the beginning, it was not so. Mm-hmm. This is the way it was. Mm-hmm. And so I got brave. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, if Jesus can use it, so can I. And I, I developed this, um, I would call it canonical narrative reading of the Old Testament, where I go to the very beginning of a narrative sequence, like say the conquest, I go to the very beginning of a sequence, and I find the first statement that God makes, and I take that as his preferred will. Then I, I notice where the people go the other direction, and a while later, God's seems to be acquiescing to the people. And that becomes the norm. And with the conquest, it's, it's probably the clearest because I recently discovered a piece that was missing. I, I couldn't figure out why numbers had God numbering Israel for militants when I thought that that should be after Kadesh Barnea, not after the golden calf. But after the golden calf, God reiterates his preferred will of driving out the inhabitants three times. Which means that the golden calf incident, they pledged allegiance to another God who would help them fight their way into Canaan and gave up the God who would just simply drive them out before them. It has made me a lot more comfortable with the Old Testament. It has also made millennials more comfortable with the Old Testament. I used to share the more Graham Maxwell approach to the Old Testament, and they would just look at me like I could see it in their eyes. No, 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 can't. I don't believe you. And they told me, this generation told me that the Old Testament God was their greatest hindrance to having a relationship with the God of the Bible. I guess I, I didn't catch what the difference between Graham Maxwell's perspective and the 
you know, the, well, Graham, Graham never developed it like I have. It, he was, he was, it was more diffused and reading the Bible as a whole and understanding why God would do this, why God would have them fight their way into Canaan. Although he did believe like I did that that wasn't God's preferred will, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he didn't articulate it with using criteria where I can show them from scripture how this took place. Yeah, because um, wasn't it right after the Red Sea, he said, I will fight for you while you keep silent? I mean, they just seen it happen too, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I will fight for you, you. And I just permitted them to have their own way. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. <laughs> you want to go into the water? Okay, go into the water. Um, so the sacrifices, though, get me because, you know, God doesn't want to... He wants to be close to his children. And how can you be close to somebody that needs to be appeased? And so I'm thinking, certainly. That's, why, that's why I refuse to see Kipper as meaning appeasement, unless yes. it's appeasing us. Yes, propitiating us. Yeah. Well, in Ro that's what I wanted to ask you, too. Uh, Romans 3.25, where it says Christ became the cover. Right? The fourth. Mm -hmm. So... There, instead of cleanse, it's kipper, right? Kippurath is, is built on the same root as kipper. Yeah. The place, you could call it the place of cleansing. You could call it the place of, uh, the place, you could call it the cover. The cover. Um, uh, so here's way, there's the problem. There's two etymologies to the word kipper. One is Akkadian, the other is Arabic. Arabic is later than Hebrew. Akkadian is earlier than Hebrew. Hmm. So the cover is Arabic and the cleansing or removing or the rubbing away is uh, Akkadian. So you could say in Romans 3.25, Christ was, instead of saying Christ was the mercy seat or the cover, mm -hmm. Christ was the cleansing. Um, yeah. But if the mercy seat is the very throne of God, why, um, through his yeah through his faithfulness god displayed jesus as the place of sacrifice is what my version says where mercy is found by means of his blood so we could problematic also, there but so we could also see it was a place of cleansing right wiping away sin yeah we could now i'm reading a scholar i have a book that has been on my kindle hadn't gotten a chance to get to it and what happened is I, I left my book that I was reading currently. So it was on my Kindle and I wanted to read it. It's on atonement. <clears throat> and it takes up this whole dispute over what Kipper means. What's the name of the book? It's a very scholarly book, Sue. So I hate to tell <laughs> you. <laughs> but it, I mean, the scholarly world is debating this issue of what yeah. Kipper is. But and, if you um, remember it ever, right? I'd like to see it. Just anyway, I started reading it, and um, it actually suggests that it should. We shouldn't just take the etymologies and apply them loosely. There's got to be some contextual evidence in the scriptures themselves before we do that. So I'm curious to see where he's going to end up in the discussion. I haven't gotten near enough to that place. And it's, he's doing a very complicated study, which I'm going to have to wrap my mind around and try to simplify. Well, I know how scholarly that that one was about, well, Isaac somebody. And I thought, yeah, 
we'll let Gene go through that and give us the rundown. <laughs> but I would love to see what his point is, you know. After yeah, that. when I get through it, I'll try to bring it back to us. But there's something in Hebrews that I wanted to point out that we haven't discussed. So if Jesus offered as a sacrifice his prayers and tears, and some of his tears were from his forehead as he shed blood, and that explains that mental agony is what causes the death of the wicked, right there. He cried with cry, his odd cries and tears as his sacrifices to the one who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his godly devotion. Although he was a son, this is what I wanted to point out, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Hmm. Why would Jesus need to learn obedience? Is obedience there the word for listen? Actually, in Greek, it was to listen under, but that's a reflection of the Hebrew, which simply means to listen. Okay. The word Shema. So he's learning to listen at, to, to what, what he's going through as a person, to understand why sin is so horrible? From our perspective, we, we sort of default to the idea of, well, he had to learn to listen because he didn't know how to listen or he wasn't listening. You know, and then we go, oh, well, you can't say that because he was perfect. Wait, he was made for per- what? And it, because <laughs> of our default thinking, we mm-hmm. can't even think of it from another perspective. Let's, let's talk about sin <clears throat> Yeah. for a minute. Is sin simply breaking a rule? No, that's a symptom distrust of god's ways so if we if it's distrust what does distrust mean what does it suggest about our state of mind we don't believe the truth that would cause us to trust right if we don't have truth and uh, we don't have trust and love we don't have any of the ingredients that would make us obedient we were really obedient we would have love and love one of the most important parts of love and it's the key to all morality is empathy i can't keep the golden rule without empathy doing unto others as i would have them do unto me is an empathetic statement i can't do empathy how do i gain empathy Suffering. Suffering. That's Jesus' obedience. Obedience to the law of love was his gaining empathy through suffering. That's identification with. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the very core of Emmanuel is mm-hmm. fully identifies not just mm-hmm. as a flesh and blood human being, but in everything we feel, Isaiah 53 you know, everything we feel he felt, and we assume God was doing it to him. But no, we were doing it to him. Mm-hmm. I like what Virginia Davison said once. He st- she said, it wasn't that God didn't know how we felt, yeah. but now we know he knows how yeah. we felt because he was one of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was for our sake to convince us that he knows. It wasn't because... He was oblivious to our suffering, but we couldn't believe it until we saw him experience it. Because that 
statement in education is is still present that at the cross is just a taste yeah. of the terrible sorrow and the empathy that God has ever felt because God is love. He has empathy. He doesn't have to learn it exactly. But I suspect this is saying, speaking of Jesus as a human being, mm-hmm. learning empathy through suffering, yeah. not as God. Right. And so that he would be both an empathetic God and empathetic human being. And with all that empathy, we're going we're gonna to get in uh, if we have any willingness at all to surrender to the sovereignty of love. This goes back exactly to what I was saying as his resume to be the representative for every human being because now Satan was never sympathetic or empathetic or anything else. He didn't experience what we experienced. So when they vote on who is legitimate representative, Jesus has experienced what everybody's experienced. So obviously he's qualified. I wonder if Jesus was always defending us, you know, I mean, before the cross too, whereas Zechariah wasn't just a forecast, but he was actually, he was always the same, always defending us, you know, whether we, whether we could believe it or, you know, understand it as perfectly as we can now that he's been here and walked among us and suffered all the abuses and that we could see that. But, um, just seems to me that he would always, always be defending us, always. Defending us, though, without having won his case. Yes, yes. We are now down to the wire. And um, we're also down to the end of the passage that we read. Uh, the only thing we haven't discussed is Melchizedek. I love it that Aaron, the Aaronite priesthood is not definitive of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That it does not come back, you know, we think of everything as typological, and the Aaronite priesthood was a type of Christ. The Hebrew says emphatically, no. <laughs> Aaronite priesthood is not type of Christ. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Can I raise a question about that? Not to sure. dispute scripture, but it's just a question that keeps tenaciously hanging on. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, right? Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. far as I know, Elizabeth and Zachariah, were they not Levites? He was a priest, right? Yeah. So how could Mary be a cousin of a priest and not be of the line of of Aaron? Was she Elizabeth's Or is it simply ignoring her lineage? It's ignoring her lineage. Always going through Joseph. Always going through Joseph. You don't so, go through the woman. So if that's true, though, ironically, biologically, Jesus was a pure Levite. Did Levites have to marry Levites? I don't know that they did. They couldn't marry prostitutes, but I don't remember anything that says they couldn't marry a non-Levite. I, I mean, there's, I can't find any evidence of Mary's actual lineage except for the fact that her cousin was the wife of a Levite. And yes, of course, it's open that either Elizabeth may not have been a Levite or Mary, but 
it, like I said, it's a tenacious question that keeps rolling around my head. What if Jesus biologically was a Levite, but by declaration of his adopted father, he's not counted as a Levite? You know, does God, you know, sometimes I think the genealogies are there to point out God doesn't care. You know, it's like Rahab was one of the descendants yeah. and... The, the thing is that I think, I think that would even strengthen the case of Hebrews. Yeah. Hebrews would just deny that mm. or to put it to one side, not even talk about it and say, even no, he's not true. an Aaronite priesthood line. So even if it was true, they don't even want to suggest that there's any credibility in it as far as legitimacy. Even if organically it was true, it's saying, there's no usefulness for that. Yeah. You went to bringing up Floyd makes me wonder why did God say all the priests had to be from Aaron's lineage? Why? Not just Levites, but from Aaron. Yeah. Right, he wasn't that great. I honestly think it has to do with the will of the people. Go ahead, George. A couple quick things. First off, especially the time of Jesus, how many people married, you know, <laughs> That gets pretty diluted out. So you almost everyone can say I'm from the tribe of Aaron because one of their cousins married one of their cousins, you know. So there may be, I think they're all married just within their own tribe, hopefully, because that's not great for genetics. But as you look at David, I mean, he had what, six or seven wives, you know. So, and again, I know it went through that one wife coming down through there, which ironically, you know, through Uriah's side of the family, well, not Uriah, but as far as through her side of the family, which, and she was from a different country too, right? She was sort of a convert to Judaism because her grandfather. Uh, as far as, uh, let me see, I know just as far as Bathsheba, where she in his right fully that part there. But the main point being, you know, God can glue it through. And you really look at Aaron, it's really amazing that he got, God let him remain as a priest because he had yeah. messed up in such a big and bold way. He had God's willing to work through big time losers that did, you know, Atrocious things lied to his brother. I threw these earrings in here, trying to get him not to wear so much jewelry, and it just formed itself, you know. And he never, in scripture, confesses his lie. That was pretty clear the way he carved on it. You know, Aaron, Moses didn't believe him. And yet God lets his liar and this guy that doesn't have the people. And to think, I mean, I have, I'm looking forward to being bumped into Aaron because he had to go around and see 3,000 widows and or kids that lost maybe both their parents because he didn't stand up. You know, his life was spared, but 3,000 people died from that terrible, you know, attempt of a coup. Uh, I think I think what we have is a lot of human stuff going on because you remember who killed those 3,000 people? It was the tribe of Levi. Everyone was involved and, or not. And the, Moses told them, you have earned your, your ordination to the, to the priesthood. So there's a lot of human stuff going on. And God, when he gave Israel a king, who did he choose? Yeah. Choose a man, chose a man after their heart. Yeah. He chose someone they would accept. So when he has to remedy something, uh, do a little bit of rigidity and out of chaos with the golden calf experience, he chooses a, king, a priest after their own heart. One thing I'd love you all's thoughts was today or another time, as far as 
how did God get Enoch into heaven so early? Because, you know, that's, I wonder how Satan threw up the penalty flag. I can't, this is, this is unfair. How can you take him home? Not that it was always easy for Enoch to go home and to see his kids and cousins and, you know, the rest of the world trash their lives and the flood didn't happen too long after that. You know, so it wasn't an easy ride for Enoch in heaven. And, you know, so in some ways, I think the world says, well, this guy, he's not the savior, but he shows he can be a good neighbor. This guy gets it. We know why God's going after the other Enochs. And whoever Melchizedek was, you know, whether it's Seth or, you know, an angel, you know, whatever, you know, how that just gives them hope that there would come a person who really had no mother, father, per se. Because Jesus did have a mother, but it's a miracle. She can be a mother, except this miracle happens. And it's, it's neat to see the ramification, whoever Melchizedek really was and how that ties in. But I think they gave the other world's hopes that, hey, there are people that represent God right. Satan claims to be their leader, but he helps inspire Cain to kill Abel. You know, it's, you know, he claims it, but he's obviously, he's stolen it. So, do you, I'm afraid that's a topic maybe for another time. Yeah, that's fine. Um, our time is going out, and we're pretty much done with the section of Hebrews. So, I'm thinking of having closing prayer. Dear God, we thank you for showing us so much of your love in how you have handled this whole great controversy. We ask that we might not lose sight of it, that we might always keep in mind that what you want is to make us whole people and you do that through your love. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.